we've been in really since January of this year. We're taking our time with the exception of a few Sundays. Uh, we've just been walking through little by little the book of Acts and we find ourselves in chapter 7. And hey, we just we love preaching through books of the Bible here at FPC because the hope is that uh, the main point of the passage that we're reading is the main point of the sermon, right? So that you're not just getting Matt's cool ideas uh, or whatever, you're really hearing the voice of God through his word. So we just want to come to the text and let it speak. And so here, we're in Acts chapter 7. Acts, it's a historical document uh, written in the first century by a doctor named Luke, same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and it's this account of the early church. These first followers of Jesus in the first century, it kind of chronicles their uh, movement and the explosion of the gospel out into the ancient world. Big thank you, by the way, to Pastor Scott Henning, who was with us last week preaching. Uh, Always good to have Pastor Scott and Christy in the house, and just so grateful for their ministry here for nearly three decades. Just love them so much. Um, Hey, it's pretty common uh, as part of the human experience to ask the question, God, where are you? Right? That's a pretty normal part uh, of our experience in life to wonder whether God is really present with us. Even as Christians, right? Even once we become believers, there's still seasons of doubt. There's still times where we need reassurance. There's still times wondering if God is here. We can't always trace the hand of God in our life visibly. It's a little hard to tell. I know that personally I've wondered this at times in my life. God, where are you? There's a pretty well-known poem uh, related to this question. Has anyone heard of the the Footprints in the Sand poem? Yeah, kind of like a classic and Christian circles. If you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you're like, what? Never heard of it. But Footprints in the Sand, it's this like famous poem uh, and it goes like this. There's basically uh, this, you know, guy or girl, I don't really know, but he looks back at life through a dream or a vision and sees, hey, there are these uh, two sets of footprints uh, walking along the beach uh, in the sand. And they say, hey, this is my life and this is God. The foot walking with me, look at us walking alongside one another. But then there are places where there's only one set of footprints, right? And the two sets turn into one. And so the person looking back at their life and those sections of their life, when there's only one set of footprints, say, God, where'd you go? There's just my set of footprints there in the sand. You left me. And those were actually some of my my lowest, darkest, hardest moments. And at the end of the poem, the big reveal, the big conclusion is God saying to the person, hey, actually, when there was only one set of footprints there, it wasn't me leaving you. That was actually when I carried you. That's, that's pretty good, right? That's, I mean, that'll, that'll preach, us pastors say. That'll preach. That's pretty good. Uh, but so, again, answering the question, God, where are you? God, where were you? And he's like, hey, I've been there all along. But I, I love that poem. And it's so well known that there's been like some, some spinoffs of it. Uh, some different variations like this one. There's a little cartoon that I love where it says, God says, hey, I never left. My child, I never left you. Those places with one set of footprints, I was, that was when I carried you. That long groove over there is when I dragged you for a while. <laughs> I love that one. And then there's, there's this little spinoff as well. The next slide shows us. But Lord, what about the times that I saw only one set of footprints in this? And Jesus says, you know what? 
Tony, stop trying to be some kind of beach detective here. <laughs> I love it. But it's so well known because, again, it captures such a relatable part of the human experience. Just the question, God, where are you? And our passage this morning, you've, maybe you've noticed already, is going to help us think through that. It's going to help us answer that question or try and make sense of that. Just a little bit of context for where we've been. If you haven't been with us in the book of Acts chapter 7, Stephen, uh, we met Stephen a little while ago, one of the leaders in the early church, and he's doing ministry in Jerusalem with the other apostles, and he gets uh, arrested, right? And he gets brought before the Sanhedrin, which was like the high court in the land, the highest Jewish court, uh, the council there. He's brought before them on trial for his life. And we've really seen this already a number of times in the book of Acts, right? The apostles, they're, they're preaching the gospel and telling everyone about Jesus, and that gets them in trouble with the authorities and the religious leaders. And so these religious leaders and the people want to get rid of Stephen and the apostles because the message of Jesus is seen as a threat. And so he's accused, Stephen is, of blasphemy, false witnesses come against him. Jews accused of speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses, things that the Jews cherished deeply. So these are like really serious charges against him that could result in his death. So we see his response before the court. Last or Two weeks ago we started this where we see uh, his response in all of chapter 7. It's the longest sermon or it's the longest speech in the whole book of Acts. It's him basically defending himself and replying there on trial. And you saw how it started in verse 2 a few weeks ago. It says, to this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. So he said, hey, in counsel. Hear me out. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And we talked about how this is kind of a strange way to start. Or maybe it surprises us that he starts here, right? Rather than just, hey, let me set the record straight. Hey, I've been accused of these things and let me tell you why these clowns are wrong and I haven't done anything wrong and here's actually what's going on. Um, instead, he starts by talking about Abraham from the Old Testament, Bit of a head-scratcher, right? Uh, he, he takes sort of the, the scenic route of saying, let me explain to you guys why actually what's going on here in my ministry and with the story of Jesus is not actually breaking the law, but is actually the fulfillment of speech. You'll see things we've been waiting for from the Old Testament. And so, so much of his speech, you'll see, it's his recap. He's like retelling the story of the Old Testament. He talks about Abraham. We're going to see this morning he talks about Joseph. Uh, we're going to see in the next few weeks, he talks about Moses and, and the prophets, all trying to say, hey guys, look, I want you to see how the story of Jesus, man, it, it, it fits into this story. It fulfills actually the story that God's been telling all along. And so as we go, we kind of get to learn a little bit about the Old Testament together. Even though we're reading the book of Acts, we, you know, go back here to the Old Testament to the book of Genesis, we're going to read a little bit about our family history, key passages in scripture, and see ultimately how it points us to Jesus. So, last week, Abraham, and it talked about how at the end of our verses last week, Abraham, he was the beginning of the people of Israel, and we see his sons, Isaac and Jacob, and then ultimately the 12 
uh, sons that were the patriarchs, the, the heads of the tribes of Israel. One of those guys was Joseph along with his brothers. And so that's where we pick up this morning, verse 9. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. So King he gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. All right, so it's fun, right? We get to go back, uh, rewind a little bit to the stories of the Old Testament and learn a bit of our story and spend some time with key figures like Joseph. If you're not familiar with Joseph, man, if you go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, chapters about 37 to 50, so it's like the last little chunk of Genesis, we read about Joseph and his life and his story. If you remember, he was loved by his father, uh, and he was actually given this really cool little coat. Remember the coat? Texas color dream coat, right? And it made his brothers jealous of the favor that he had from his father. And so his brothers cooked up a plan. They said, we got to get rid of this guy. And so they, they seize him and they actually sell him into slavery. And some traders pick him up and take him down to Egypt. And once he's down in Egypt, he's, he's bought by this man named Potiphar, who is an official in the household of Pharaoh in Pharaoh's court. And so Joseph then is in Egypt as a servant in Potiphar's household. But then Potiphar's wife, remember her? Man, she's, she's a piece of work. So she has eyes for Joseph. She blames And she tries to get shysty with him, remember? And he says no, and he runs out. But then she gets mad, and she blames him. And so he goes to prison. And so then Joseph not only was sold as a slave into Egypt, but now he's in prison in Egypt, not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing the right thing. And he's there in prison, and he interprets some dreams, and through a series of events, Pharaoh finds out about him, and he earns Pharaoh's trust, and he, he rises to this prominent position in the land of Egypt. He actually comes to be second in command under only Pharaoh himself. I mean, it's, it's an amazing story, a remarkable life. So, so many things we, we could learn from Joseph. But for now, the the key part of the story that Acts chapter 7 points out and that we need to remember is this repeated refrain or line throughout Joseph's story in the book of Genesis. And over and over again, the story tells us that the Lord was with Joseph. Again, look at verse uh, 30, excuse me. Chapter 39 of Genesis. You don't have to turn there. We'll have it on the screen. Genesis 39, verses 1 and 2. So now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Verse 2. And the Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Then a little later in that chapter, chapter 39, verse 20. It says, Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison. This is after the whole thing with his wife. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, there it is, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. It actually shows up a few other times in the text, but that refrain, the Lord was with him. 
The Lord was with Joseph. Now, hear me out. Joseph's story, his life, is probably like top five for me in terms of stories, uh, accounts in the whole Bible. It's got to be top five for me. It's most encouraging, most helpful, uh, most you know, paradigm changing because uh, it, it just messes with us. It really messes with us and our assumptions about what it means to walk with God. Or what it means to be blessed by God. Or to be close to God. Because when does the text tell us that God was with Joseph? It's at the low points in his life. Right? Hey, when he was sold into slavery, the Lord was with him. him. And then after, when he ended up in prison, by no fault of his own, he was with him. It just messes with us because it's not when God takes Joseph to the mountaintops of life and it says, and God was with him. It's not when, hey, life for Joseph was comfortable and smooth and, and business was going well and he was getting the promotion and his family was healthy. No, it was at the low points that the Lord was with him. It's when his whole life, think about it, his whole life was flipped upside down. Just try and put yourself in his shoes for a second. He loses his family. He loses his home, his freedom. I mean, life as he knows it is gone and changes radically for the worse. And yet, even then, but the Lord was with Joseph. And as we read on, we'll see, hey, there's a bigger plan and purpose that God has for Joseph that he's not aware of. One day things will start to make sense and dots will start to connect for Joseph, but today is, is not that day. He probably still has a lot of questions there in Egypt. But it makes us wonder, right, if we were just to slow down together and pause today. And it makes us ask the question, how do we measure God's presence in our lives today? I mean, how do you know if God is with you? What's it based on? What are the measurements you use? We don't have like a little Holy Spirit meter in our household, like our thermostat, right? To be like, oh, hey, he's here. So how do we know? I mean, is, is it based on, again, those external circumstances? Things in my life seem to be going well. Again, the promotion, and I'm healthy, or my, my family's healthy, or I'm successful in business, or I'm hitting my goals, whatever those goals might be. Is that a sign, hey, God is blessing me. He's with me. Or is it based on something like your moral performance, uh, your obedience, your ability to jump through the spiritual hoops and avoid like the big bad sins and not go to prison, you know, those sorts of things. And that shows, hey, I, I think I'm doing pretty well, so therefore God must be with me. I, I, is it based on some kind of emotional response, that you, something you feel at church? Some internal spark, some over, uh, overwhelming emotional uh, time of singing songs out at church. See, Joseph's life, it challenges us. And it's going to show us that, hey, our common measurements, most of them are at best incomplete. Our common measurements at best are incomplete for measuring if we know God is with us. And so how do we know? 
Well, again, we know because God has promised us his presence. The Lord Jesus himself says he'll never leave or forsake us. And so if we are in Christ, if we're walking with Jesus and we do have the promise of God that he'll never leave us. And so we are to take him at his word. You know, I I feel this way or my circumstances say this, but I know God says this. Therefore, I'm going to take God at his word and believe that he's with me. It's going to be based on what the Lord says. Now, notice with me, uh, Joseph isn't given an explanation for everything that's happening to him. You know, imagine, just I can picture Joseph trying to make sense of his life and God's hand in his life at, at the low moments. Like, just zoom in on Joseph, and he's like in this, you know, little caravan on the way to Egypt as a slave. And there's some, like, overly zealous, cheery church greeter that comes up to him and then says, like, hey, Joseph, hey, buddy, what's God doing in your life right now? And he would say, I, I don't know. I have no idea what God's up to right now. Or think about it, zoom in on, he's, he's later there in prison after the whole thing with Potiphar's wife. And we zoom in on his story and there's some, again, overly zealous, cheery church greeter there somehow with him in prison. And hey, hey, how are you doing? What's God doing in your life right now? What's God teaching you lately? He said, man, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a clue. Because I thought I was doing the right thing, and now I'm in prison. I don't know. And it's not until years later, years later, and events unfold that he starts to see the plan and purpose and hand of God, and he starts to connect some of the dots. And hey, some of us on this side of eternity in our lives, we might never see the dots connected. And so the invitation is this, don't judge God's presence or activity in your life based on immediate circumstances. That's what the story of Joseph teaches us. Don't judge God's presence or activity in your life based on immediate circumstances. And I love, too, that hey, God doesn't set him down for a meeting. He doesn't give him the script ahead of time. Hey, Joseph, some, some twists and turns in the story are ahead. Let me, let me sit you down and prepare you for it. It's going to be a little distressing. Here's what's going to happen, and I want you to know. He's not given an explanation, not beforehand, not during, but he's given God's comforting presence. The Lord is with him, right? I love how Pastor Rick Warren put it. He said this, that God doesn't owe us an explanation for everything. And actually what I found is that explanations don't comfort. What comforts is the presence of God, not the explanation of God. I think that's so helpful. Because maybe knowing why is less important than knowing that God is with us. We're not guaranteed an explanation for everything. But we are guaranteed as believers the presence and comfort of God. So friends, I I don't know why you're going through what you're going through. And I know some of you are going through some stuff. 
But I do know that God loves you. We have a good Father in heaven who promises to be with you. And if you've trusted in Jesus, then you are called a son or daughter of God. And God the Father delights in you. And he longs for you to draw near to him. And I think some of us just need to be reminded of that simple truth this morning, that you are loved by God. Reminded of that simple truth that that in Christ you are a child of God, a beloved son or daughter of the King. And he just wants you to know he's with you right now. It's a beautiful reminder from Joseph's story. But you might be saying, okay, great, uh, Pastor That's all well and good, but we're here in the book of Acts, and so I'm still kind of scratching my head about why Stephen, you know, on trial for his life, would be talking about Joseph and this kind of like heartwarming little story about God's presence with him, right? And like, what's his point? Why is Stephen talking about this here? Well, I'm glad you asked. That is a great question. And I want us to, to look here. There's more ahead, and it's so good, guys. It's so, it's so good, Ashton. It's, it's so good. It's so good, brother. Dennis, come on. Uh, Joan, it's so good. You guys, I, want, oh, it, I want you to see it. Um, Acts chapter 7, there's, there's a connection here. because We're going to trace the trajectory, okay, of, of Joseph's life. Think about it. Stephen's saying, hey, he was rejected by his brothers. And then he was raised up and exalted by God as a ruler over all Egypt. And then there's more. Back to Stephen on trial. Look at it. Acts chapter 7, verse 11. It says, then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was. And Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. And after this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. And their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for the sons of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. So Stephen said, hey guys, 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 I want you to trace Joseph's life. Think about the arc of his life with me. He, he started, he's rejected by his brothers. Actually, before that, he's loved by his father. Then he's rejected by his brothers. And they actually, they think he's dead. But he was raised up, exalted to a position of power. And ultimately, he was a rescuer. Right? A great famine came throughout all the land. But God raised Joseph up to prepare Egypt. Right? To, To have storehouses of grain and food preserved, ready for those years of famine. And so God used Joseph as a rescuer for Joseph's family. The whole family, verses 12 and 14, comes down to Egypt for food. Now, go back with me, just hang with me, to the the end of the story in Exodus. Genesis chapter 45, you see this dramatic moment where Joseph confronts his brothers. It's an amazing story. They don't know he's alive, and yet he's been kind of messing with them for a little while. And then he reveals himself to them. Genesis 45, verse 4, check it out. It says, then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with 
yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then a little later, in his summary to his brothers in Genesis 50, he says, you intended to harm me. Maybe you've heard it said, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Think about that. It was not you who sent me here, but God. You intended to harm me, brothers, and you're still guilty and you still made your choices, but God intended it for good. Do you see God's sovereign hand in the life of Joseph? We're reminded of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. Can you say that word with me? Sovereign. Thank you, brother. That was good. Sovereign. If you think about the word sovereign, it actually has a couple words in the word. The word reign is in that word. Picture it. And the word over is in the word. So what does it mean that God is sovereign? It means he reigns over all things. Even the twists and turns, the ups and downs of Joseph's life, of our life, God has a plan and a purpose. And for Joseph, it was that he would raise him up to be a rescuer. That God is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Romans 1 tells us. And so again, okay, remember the context. We're almost there. He's on trial for his life before the Sanhedrin, Acts chapter 7. Stephen's telling all this to the council. Remember about Joseph, and he was rejected, and then he was raised up, and then there was a famine, and he was used as a rescuer to feed the people. Here's his point. Guys, Sanhedrin, listen up. In our family history, sometimes people reject the rescuer whom God has raised up. Look at Joseph. Right? He, he was chosen and blessed to be used by God in a mighty way, but his brothers were jealous of him and they got rid of him. But he was the one who saved them all. And as the speech goes on, Joseph's, or Stephen's point is that, hey, Joseph wasn't the only one. God raised up Joseph, and he was rejected. God raised up Moses, and Moses would be rejected, and people would grumble about his leadership. And then God would send the prophets, and people would reject and kill the prophets. Say, hey, there's this pattern that people often reject the rescuer that God raises up. And so just just a side note before we land the plane. Realize realize the, the grace and mercy and patience of God throughout history. Realize how gracious God is. Like over and over again, he calls out to his people. Over and over again, he sends them prophets. Over and over again, he raises up leaders and rescuers over and over again, and they reject him. And they reject them, and they reject the message like over and over again. And yet, God in his grace and mercy continues to call out to them. Some say God in the Old Testament was harsh. 
And sure, there are some passages in there that, that are difficult to understand for us at times. But man, God reveals his heart. He's slow to anger. He's so gracious. We read throughout scripture time and time again, he opens his hands out to his people saying, would you just come home to me? I don't, I don't know about you, but I can look at my life and say, God has been so patient with me. Man, I was a knucklehead back in the day. I was a fool. Even when I came to know Jesus, I was just like really annoying, overzealous, kind of chubby youth group kid. And, I, and God was so patient with me and so gracious with me to walk with me. Say, come along, come along. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Come along, come along. Um, God is so gracious. So Stephen's point is, hey, hey, just look at Joseph. Sometimes people reject the rescuer whom God has raised up. And so now, think about Jesus. This Jesus and the gospel of Jesus is being preached in the first century. Think about Jesus. He, like Joseph, was the beloved son of his father. And he came to his own, but his own brothers did not receive him. But no, he was seen as a threat. And Jesus, this Jesus, like Joseph, was rejected. And yet he was raised up and exalted by God the Father. And he was God's perfect plan of salvation. Even though he was rejected and killed, Jesus is the rescuer. When there was famine in the land, he provided food, his very body, for our salvation through his death on the cross. And he ultimately rescues us not from famine or temporary physical death, but from our sin. He rescues us from eternal death and judgment before a holy God. So here's the takeaway. Don't reject the rescuer. You guys did great. You hung with me all throughout. We landed the plane. We're here. Don't, don't reject the rescuer. It happened before with Joseph. He's saying, guys, Sanhedrin, don't, don't let it happen again now with Jesus. It's his plea before the Sanhedrin, and it's his, his plea and, and challenge to us today. Friends, don't reject the rescuer. Don't miss what God's doing. It's new. Don't miss what God has done for you. Don't miss what he invites you into, this new life in Christ where you're forgiven and washed and redeemed and reconciled and brought back home to the God who loves you. Don't reject the rescuer. Now, I, I, I get it. Um, some of us, many of us maybe, there, there's barriers sometimes to, to belief. There, there's things that get in the way of us uh, coming to Christ. Some of us have, have big questions or doubts, or we, we wonder about the pain in our lives and the things we've experienced, or we wonder about the pain in the world and why things are so broken and there's so much evil, it seems, that is left unchecked. Or, or we've been hurt by the church or in the church and we, we carry wounds with us around. We say, what about this part of the Bible? Or I don't know how to make sense of this. And we, we have our list, right? And some of those are really valid questions. And I would love to sit with you over a cup of coffee and talk about. We say, here's why I don't want to get on board with the Jesus thing. I just want you to realize that the council there in the first century, Acts chapter 7, the Sanhedrin, they have their list too. Why they Stephen's pleading with them, but they have their reasons for why they don't believe Jesus is who he said he is. I mean, he was, he was condemned. 
He was uh, put to a shameful uh, prisoner's death, crucifixion. He was a lawbreaker. He was a blasphemer. I mean, in their minds, they rejected him and for good reason in their minds. And so Stephen is trying to to pry open the door of their hearts just a little bit, saying, guys, can't you see? Remember what happened with Joseph. The one that was rejected was the very one that God raised up to rescue the world. Would you at least be willing to reconsider your assumptions about who Jesus is? Would you just open the door of your heart just a crack and say, Lord, help me hear your voice in all this? Because sometimes the very thing that you reject is the very thing that you need. And so the invitation is to, is to look at Jesus. And I get it. There's a lot of um, maybe baggage around that. But the invitation is to look, look at Jesus and sit at his feet and hear his voice. What if Jesus is the key to the freedom and the healing and the hope and the transformation that you need? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, we worship you. Uh, you are the king. You are the risen one. You are the hero of the story. You are our deliverer, our rescuer. And we look into our hearts and we realize our own tendency to reject you or turn from you or to be hard-hearted towards you. And so thank you, Lord, for this reminder from Scripture, this, this invitation to not reject the rescuer, to bring all our doubts and all our questions and all our concerns and all the things we're rest, wrestling with to your feet and just sit with you. We love you. We need you. We look to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, let's not the rescuer. We praise Jesus today for his power, for the cross. We praise him for the, the empty grave. Let's lift our voices together and sing this morning.